Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. Hello, welcome to The Rest is History, and now we go over to Port Stanley in the Falkland Islands. Well, the radio station has now been taken over. I still hope that we can get His Excellency the Governor's message to you. Um, sir, what, what do you what do you want to... do you want to, to speak to the people? Um, what okay, do you want to tell? Uh, tell the people to wait, uh, turning on uh, their receivers, uh, to wait some minutes. Uh, in some minutes, the chief is going to communicate them what we are going to, what we want uh, for the for the population. And well, just a minute. If you, if you take the gun out of my back, I'm going to transmit it to you. If you take the gun away. But I'm not speaking with a gun in my back. Well, there's an argument going on now between the three Argentines. They've disappeared. They've left me alone in this room. That was the Falklands National Radio Station on the morning of the 2nd of April, 1982. And Dominic Sandbrook, that is history in the making, isn't it? Being broadcast out. That is the arrival of the Argentines on the Falkland Islands, or Las Malvinas, as the Argentines themselves would call it. Um, and that set in train a, a very, very dramatic series of events that happened exactly 40 years ago. And I know that you are, you're brimming over like a six-year-old hosting a birthday party with excitement at this. I am. I am. <laughs> Uh, it's a great way to start, Tom, because we're, it's starting that such a dramatic moment, such an extraordinary moment, actually, because that guy is Patrick Watts. Uh, he is broadcasting to the people of the Falkland Islands, the 1,800 people, um, on the Friday morning. And he's basically saying the Argentines have landed overnight. And as he's broadcasting, the Argentines burst into the studio and then they have a massive row among themselves, <laughs> waving their guns around in the air. And at precisely that moment, we can't play the whole clip. But precisely at that moment, the governor of the Falklands rings up and says, oh, I've got very bad news. <laughs> the Argentines <laughs> have, have arrived. And uh, and it's just an absolutely... So the whole story of the Falklands War, it's the 40th anniversary. Um, we were talking about this before we started, weren't we, Tom, about how it's a sort of combination of... It's it's very Churchillian in some ways, or at least people think they are. It's sort of Churchill role play for the British. But at the same time, there's this bizarre kind of 1950s comedy yeah. aspect to it, which yeah. that clip actually perfectly yeah. encapsulates. Yeah. It's, 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 yes, it's the finest hour kind of rewritten by the carry on crew or Tom Sharp or Peter Sellers or that, that level of, um, and, and I have to say, Dominic, that the definitive account of this, I mean, you're, you're a wonderful writer, you're a wonderful historian, but the four chapters that you devote to the Falklands War in your most recent history, Britain, Who Dares Wins, Britain, 1979 to 1982, I genuinely think is one of the great pieces of, of British 21st century writing. Oh, it's, 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 it's as good as anything in any novel. 
that I've that I've read. It's absolutely fantastic. And I think you'll remember that uh, I, I was letting you know how much I was enjoying reading um, Who Dares Wins when it came out. But the, the honestly, if you haven't read it, listeners, go and get it. But actually, you won't need to because, Dominic, you're basically going to do it now for us. I am. You? I am. I am. I'll <laughs> I, I mean, it is a kind of dramatic story. It's a story of military prowess, naval prowess, lots of stuff that's been written about it, focuses on the, the kind of the military exploits, the technical um, wizardry that enabled the task force to go all the way from Britain and recapture this kind of rocky outcrop in the middle of the South Atlantic. But it is also amid the horror and the tragedy and the bloodshed i mean it is often a deeply comic story too and that uh, full of extraordinary characters yeah i think that's absolutely true so jorge luis borges the brilliant argentine writer said it was two bald men fighting over a comb and um Do you know i've I, never I, quite understood what that meant so so he basically was arguing that the falklands were completely useless and trivial and that um two sort of spent shallow opportunistic sort of governments were fighting over them and sacrificing people's lives um for nothing and i think that's actually i mean he he had this sort of joke about you know the bolivians have always been crossed because they don't have access to the sea so why don't we give them to bolivia to make up for it but of course the the, the thing was with the forms where there were almost two thousand people living on those islands you know his future who were was british at stake well who thought themselves to be british and were they british they were well they i mean they were there were no there were no so they're british passport holders yeah they're well they're i mean they are subjects of the crown um, so it's kind of like the channel islands or something exactly exactly right. we can go into the whole saga okay so of- well, well let's 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 so yeah let's start at the beginning so why what are these islands just off argentina I suppose they're not just off Argentina, well, are they? I mean, they're, they're, yeah. but let's say they're closer to Argentina than they are, say, to Southampton. Anywhere else. <laughs> yeah, they are. So, <laughs> so what, what is the basis of the British claim on right. Falkland Islands? Let's get into the whole... So the Falkland Islands, for those people who, don't, who have no idea what we're talking about, it's, it's a war fought between Britain and Argentina in the um, spring of 1982. It's a decisive moment in the history of Argentina and its transition to democracy, in the history of Britain and the survival of the Thatcher Premiership, and in Britain's sense of itself. But, at the, as you say, at the centre of it are these islands that are just miles from anywhere, and that's one of the things that gives this this sort of slight comic opera aspect. So the Falklands, you said they're just off the coast of Argentina, and that is what most people think, Tom, if they if they think they're not in Scotland, which is what everybody thought in 1982. <laughs> yeah. um, and we'll come on to maybe come back to that issue of whether or not they were in Scotland. So they are 500 miles from Rio Gallegos, which I think is the nearest Argentine city, the nearest sizable port. So they're not off the coast of Argentina. They're quite a long way off the coast of Argentina, but they're closer to Argentina than to anywhere else. So basically what happens is in the 18th century, these islands which are uninhabited, which are very cold, which do look like Scottish islands or like the Faroe Islands or something. Except they've got penguins, right? Uh, yeah, they do have penguins, but they're very cold. They're more moorland. Um, they have lots of sheep, um, but yeah, there's 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 nothing. There's no natural resources. Miles and miles of bugger all. Dennis Thatcher said. Dennis about Thatcher, him. miles and miles of bugger all. So Sam, Dr. Johnson talked of their bleak and gloomy solitude. Charles Darwin, who who went to the Falkland Islands, said was struck by their desolate and wretched aspects, their peaty soil and wiry glass of one monotonous brown colour. So they're not desirable at all. But what happens in the 18th century? The English arrive first, the British rather. They, they so see the British them discover them? The British discover them. They basically sail past them. So is it is it a, a Lord Falkland or somebody who's, Admiral Falkland who's leading well, this expedition? Lord Falkland 
never goes there. So the first person to go there, I think, or the first person to give the name is a guy called John Strong, who's an English captain. So I said 18th century, it's actually, it's, it's late 17th century, 1690. And he names them in the honor of the treasurer of the Navy who sponsored his journey, who is Viscount Falkland. Oh, right. So, hence you get the Falkland Islands. So, but the, but the, the English or rather the British, they don't kind of permanently settle. And actually what happens in the 18th century is the islands just keep changing hands. So the French, I think, have the first real permanent settlement and they change hands several times. It's a very confusing and actually, you know, not an especially exciting story, but they end up with Spain, um, which makes sense because, of course, Spain has lots of colonies in South America. So there are lots of Spanish ships passing. So they end up with Spain. But then what happens in the Napoleonic Wars is that Spain abandons them. So there's no sort of large scale settlement there. Why would there be? You know, if you're Spanish and you're going to the New World, you'd go to Argentina or, or yeah. Europe. So there's no or gold or anything. There's nothing there. So the Spanish leave in the Napoleonic Wars, but they leave a plaque, and that, that is very important in the sort of the, the talk of the claim of the islands because the plaque says these islands are Las Malvinas and they belong to the Spanish crown. Now, what happens after that is that in 1816, the Argentina, the vice royalty of you know, the, the river plate or whatever declares independence from Spain because the Spanish empire in, in Latin America is, is breaking up. And when Argentina is basically formed, um, the Argentine, the new Argentine government say, well, we get all the possessions of the Spanish empire um, in this area. And that includes the Falkland islands. And they establish a very small colony. I mean, we're talking about literally a handful of people on the islands, so in the 1820s. The people on the islands, the Spanish colony, I think they're always falling about among themselves. You know, the sort of the three men and a dog who are there. Yeah. And in 1833, very important day, because eight, 1983 will be the 150th anniversary of this. So in 1833, the British move in. They basically think this would be a tremendous spot for us to have a sort of base, you know, refueling, all this sort of stuff. Um and they establish permanent control. And what so, do they do with the Spanish people who are on it? I don't think it makes a much a really substantive difference. The so there British. isn't some kind of diplomatic protest from Spain or uh, from Argentina? From yeah. Argentina? Oh, the Argentines don't like it, but there's nothing that much they can do about it. I mean, the Argentines, Argentina's politics in the 19th century is very turbulent. So the Argentines, it's not number one on the Argentine government's kind of to do list. And, and um, also, isn't, isn't it right that in the 19th century, and, and in fact, right the way into the 20th century, Argentina is a kind of unofficial colony of Britain? Exactly. So this is the, the whole history of the relationship between Argentina and Britain is really, really interesting. So Argentina is, is a kind of informal colony of Britain. It's, it's, it's got all kinds of links to British business interests, shipping. Obviously, the export of beef is massively important mm. for Argentina. And, and that's how they learn football. The football, rugby. And indeed cricket. Polo, cricket, gentlemen's clubs, Buenos Aires has them all. So at the end of the 19th century, if you are an English gentleman, public school educated English gentleman, you can go to Buenos Aires and feel completely at home as you would do if you went to India or Australia or somewhere like that. There are gentlemen's clubs, there are people playing polo, there are people watching rugby, there are, as you say, you know, River Plate, I mean, the very name of the football club, one of the two great football clubs of, um, of Buenos Aires is, is in English. Um, which tells its own story. So Argentina has this relationship with Britain that is not uncommon and is very similar to the relationship that countries have now with the United States. So mm -hmm. uh, on the one hand, it, 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 it feels Britishness 
is a sort of it connotes status and prestige and people want to have their their british star suits and they want to play polo but there's also a bit of resentment yeah at the same time especially you know for as you go lower down the the social spectrum and i think you don't get to understand what happens with the falklands if you don't understand what happens with the history of argentina so right the the falkland islands yeah, there are, there, are, there are very few people on them. I, mean, I think the, the population peaks at about 3,000 in the interwar years, and they're, sh- they're all sheep farmers. That is all there is to do. But in the context of the British Empire and Britannia yeah. ruling the, the waves, is it is it significant, strategically significant, while Britain has an empire? Because there's also, also uh, there's an island called South Georgia, right, which is even further yes. out into the Atlantic, and that also plays a part in this story. Yeah, there's also Southern Thule. Which is even that's a that's such a romantic name. Which is even further away. Southern Thule is one thousand two hundred miles south of Stanley, and I think South Georgia is about eight hundred miles east of Stanley. I mean, South Georgia is famous for the role it plays in uh, Shackleton, exactly. um, the, yes. the the great Antarctic explorer. But I mean, is it, are these islands really anything more than a forward base for Antarctic exploration? Or? Not really. Not really. But they they play a role in the First World War, don't they? Uh, a, there's a battle. Yes, there's a battle um, there. In, yes, exactly. So, so in the event of of a war, of a naval war, so yes, these are important. There's all kinds of you know um, sort of uh, shenanigans in the First World War, sort of searching for German ships and all this kind of mm. carry on. But that only really matters in the event of a war. Generally, you know, if you're into whaling, then South Georgia is very good. If you're into Antarctic exploration, if you want to, you want to have it there, possibly you want to have a base to refuel and stuff, but you can live perfectly well without it. I yeah. mean, it's not like okay. this is a, a central part of some colossal geopolitical so, game of risk. So going, going into the post-war years, as the British Empire fades away, yeah. as colonies get given up, as yeah. British naval power retreats, the Falkland Islands are, are, are a kind of geopolitical appendix uh, yeah. or coccyx. They're a, a kind of... They're, that's exactly what... They're just kind of, so they don't really serve any purpose. They're the remnants, the remnants remnants of a former, of a prehistoric tale. Yeah, that's exactly what they are. Yeah. So, and and that's not uncommon, Tom. I mean, the Pacific is littered with islands. All the French have a lot of them. The French have lots of them. The Americans do. I mean, Guam or whatever. I mean, you could argue Hawaii is is a much bigger. Well, we talked about Hawaii, didn't we? I mean, that should probably be British. (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> of course it should. We the cricket playing Anglicans. Yeah, I mean, what's basically happened is if you were, it's no need to, to to delve too deep into imperialism for this. What's happened is the human race has expanded massively over every corner of the earth. And in the 19th century, European colonial powers have basically taken every, every little sort of two-bit atoll they've established, if they can. Planted a flag. A little planted a flag. And the Falklands, they, they've done that, and then some people have turned up to farm sheep. Now, some people have been there for generations. They're hundreds of miles from anywhere. Um, I mean, they don't want independence. They can't have independence because they're not self-sufficient. Everything so, has to be imported. Okay, so we, so we, let's say we get to 19, 1980. Right, that's a big leap. Yeah, go on. I guess we do have to get through this in less than 10 podcasts. So. There are uh, about 2,000 people. Yeah, 1,800. All of them British. Who? Yeah. Uh, who are going back generations? So, I mean, they've been there since some are. since eighteen thirty three. Some of them, some of them are not all of them. Um, they have a so there's nothing to do on the Falkland Islands. So, if you're young, you know you can't. Often, you want to get out. So, young, yeah, there's a there's a the, famously what happens is that sort of there's a very small Royal Marine garrison, and, and so the girls marry the girls marry the Royal Marines and go off because they yeah. they the bright lights of you know 
Chelmsford uh, or whatever. In, in your book, you, you quote the BBC Latin America correspondent talking about the Falklands. And he says, a lot of drunkenness, a high divorce rate and a shortage of women, yeah. which doesn't. Yeah, no, it doesn't really. <laughs> OK, um... but Dominic, would I mean, it is it is nevertheless, when we look at the politics of this, the geopolitics of this, I mean, it is a fact that these people have been there and that these islands have been British for almost 150 years. So that's yeah. older than many countries. Yeah, of course. So um, there's also there's no minority. So there's no indigenous people, and nor is there nor is there any sort of you know this is not kind of um, Northern Ireland or something. There's no there's no community that wants union with Argentina. Yeah. The I mean, as we'll 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 see in just a second, the islanders are dead against any union with Argentina. Now, the Argent for the Argentines, the Falklands have have loomed larger and larger as the 20th century has gone on. Not for any strategic reason. Not because any Argentine really has ever visited the Falklands or. But it's this kind of symbol, a totem. But, but and does it specifically serve as a totem of casting off Britain? So, so that kind of legacy of of oppressive British cultural and economic influence. That uh, uh, and so, in a sense, you know, and we see this say with Iran or with Russia that Britain has a notoriety above yeah. its straightened station. Agreed. 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 The Britain is kind. I think the the, the resentment of Britain is a kind of shorthand in it in and of itself for something else, which is that Argentina had, uh, it's got an extraordinary history because it had entered the 20th century as one of the world's 10 richest countries Mm. and a country that appeared set fair to be a real player in the 20th century. I mean, it's got this beef industry that is incredibly lucrative and it's got Buenos Aires, which is a massively expanding, you know, European style city, Italian immigrants pouring in, everything seems set fair. And Argentina then has an awful 20th century, which nobody had really expected because the, the industry in which it didn't, you know, food prices collapse because of the First World War and they never really recover. And it becomes torn apart by all kinds of instability. So from about the 1940s and 50s, when you had Juan Perón, the sort of populist nationalist, you know, husband leader, of Evita. Husband of Evita. He had, brand, he had waved the flag of the Falklands and he basically sort of said, um, Argentina has been mutilated. You know, we have been part of our our birthright has been taken from us by these. They always would call them us pirates. Mm. So they would stuff so like Drake us. or something. Yeah, by these English pirates who have stolen that Las Malvinas, and um, we will never be whole until they are returned. And there would be billboards or posters in the late nineteen forties and nineteen fifties in Buenos Aires saying, "You know, English pirates, give us back the Malvinas." And so it's sort of, as you say, it becomes a totem. Argentina then has this absolutely hellish, hellish 1970s. So Perón, who had been kicked out, he comes back in 73, 74. He's a, a bit of a wreck. He dies. His wife, Isabel, becomes um, leader of Argentina. She's then kicked out by the army. And then they have the junta and the, the Argentine military junta. So they are presiding over a dirty war against their own people. They are kind of kick, throwing people out of helicopters over the Atlantic Ocean. They're shooting and torturing poets and dissidents. And, and, and this trade is the backdrop and, um, to uh, to Jorge Bergoglio, who later becomes Pope Francis. Yeah, he's head of the Jesuits there, and he is indeed. Relations That's, are kind of much debated. I think you've you've done well to get Christianity in, Tom. I didn't think you've done <laughs> well, well. well, I thought it was important. But um, Dominic, could I? Could, I mean, could I read a, a top historian on? Go on on the uh, the generals of the hunter the officers of the hunter yeah do they were very good at launching coups wearing sunglasses and murdering dissidents but in some cases their only experience of combat 
had been to apply electrodes to the genitals of left-wing poets. That, that's and my, Dominic, <laughs> that, that, that top historian was none other than yourself. It was myself. Yeah, it was Who me. dares win. Oh, and yeah. so, so, I mean, that basically sums them up. They're not um, good guys. They're not good guys. And one of, one, so one of the themes that you, you bring out brilliantly in your book is the way in which, I mean, if you wanted to have a colonial war in the, ni- in the 1980s, a period where it would seem that colonial wars are, you know, not the kind of thing that, that you go in for. Um, the Argentine Junta is basically ideal. I mean, they're terrible. They're terrible people. <laughs> they torture and maim, as you say, left-wing poets. Yeah. Um, they're not very good at fighting, are they? I mean, they haven't had a, a huge amount of experience of it. They have never really fought anybody other than their own people. Um, and so- they're kind of grotesque. They, they have that kind of grotesque comic, comic quality. They do, or, uh, but but sinister the, at the same time. Yeah, very right? sinister. I mean, yeah. So so they have been in since the mid seventies, and they're presiding over a country where there is a there's a basically an urban, you could almost call it a low level civil war. There's kind of guerrilla movement, the Montoneros, who are setting off bombs and kidnapping people and all this kind of stuff. They also have inflation that is, I mean, crazy levels. So you know, three digits. And know. so that's impoverishing the middle classes. Exactly. But also, I mean, also it's impossible to, for the working class, it's impossible to buy anything because the prices are going up all the time. There are constant problems with strikes. Um, so they've got this kind of economic basket case. And um, they have an ideology, which anybody familiar with Latin American post-war politics will know, which is almost, quite, which is quite fascistic. Mm-hmm. So it's it's all about kind of the nation, manhood, threatened by you know poets and and left-wingers and communists and the americans of course are pouring money in to keep those because they're terrified of communism and they have this kind of operation condor which is all about you know uh, training their secret police training their intelligence services in in suppressing dissent and all this it's very dodgy very i mean the dirty war label is well deserved and so general galtieri who yeah. becomes head of the junta in early 1982. Yeah, the turn it? of 1982, exactly. So he's the head of the... So what, what's happened in the junta, by the way, is they have um, inter-service rivalries. So the army, the air force, <laughs> the navy, they kind so of hate each to other. The fun. And that adds to the chaos. Yeah. So Galtieri, who's um, of Italian descent... But trained uh, at West Point, I learned. But trained at West Point. And yeah. he, they're all very pro-American. So one of the subtexts for the Balkans War, the Argentines are absolutely convinced that the Americans will back them. Hmm. It, is, it, it doesn't occur to them that the Americans will, will not back them. So um, Galtieri is coming at the beginning of 82. And um, so actually what the Argentine armed forces, I didn't really go into this massively in my book, but this is such a fascinating aspect of the story. The Argentine armed forces wanted a war at the end of the 1970s. But actually, that Britain wasn't their first choice. Their first choice was Chile. Yeah, they hate the Chileans, don't they? <laughs> they, hate them, they hate and the Chileans hate them. And that's and a, the going to be an important part of the story too. To outsiders, those regimes look pretty much identical. <laughs> so you've got General Pinochet in, um, in yeah. Chile, and you have Galtieri and his kind of cronies in Argentina. But they absolutely despise each other. And the Argentines really wanted to have a war with Chile about the Beagle Islands and the division of the border in Tierra del Fuego. Yeah. I mean, that really would be the definition of... So, so but, but it's it's kind of American-backed fascists wanting to fight one another. So they can't back the American-backed fascists in Chile, so they choose the American-backed fascists in Britain, right? Oh, very good, Tom. Okay, very good. right. Very good. That's very, um, the young one style. I don't know. So we've got Galtieri at the head. He's trained at West Point. He's yeah. American-backed. And then we have um, Admiral Jorge Enea, who is right. head of the Navy. 
Yeah, but, he's, but Galtieri has no brain at all. So, but they're Galtieri, pals, aren't they? they they've been they're... pals since their days at military college. And Anaya, who is the um, he is the uh, he's the brains of the hunter, and he basically says to Galtieri at the beginning of eighty two, you know, the regime is a shambles, the economy is a mess in Argentina. What we need to do is we obviously need a very crowd pleasing gesture, and in and in one year from now, it will be the hundred and fiftieth anniversary of the moment when these pirates stole the Islas Malvinas. So we can get these islands back before them. The reason he thinks that is because he looks at, at Britain and he sees a country basically in chaos. Yeah, well, this is the other aspect, isn't it? So okay. we've done Argentina, we've done the Falklands, okay. and we should... So let's, let's take a break now. And when we come back, we will look at the political context in Britain in the build-up to the invasion of the Falklands. Hello and welcome back to The Rest is History. And we are talking about the Falklands War, which happened exactly 40 years ago as we record this in late March 2022. This miniseries will stretch out over four episodes, with episode two coming tomorrow, that's Tuesday, episode three on Thursday, and then the final episode next Monday, so next week on the 4th of April. Although, of course, if you can't bear to wait for that, and you're a member of the Rest is History Club, you can listen to the whole thing already. Restishistorypod.com to join. Now let's look at Britain. It, it's not in a happy place in no. 1982. Why do the Argentines choose, why do they think they can get away with invading the Falklands or snatching them from, from Britain? Well, they look at Britain as everybody else does, and they think Britain's a complete basket case. So what's happened in Britain has been, let's say, 14 years of tremendous political and economic turbulence. I mean, I know people have different views about whether the 70s were brilliant or whether they were terrible, but Britain has devalued the pound. It has had a series of governments that have fallen after conflict with the trade unions, um, it has had a bailout from the International Monetary Fund. It has had endless problems with strikes and, and trouble between the governments and the unions. It has got the issue of Northern Ireland and the you know the IRA uh, bombing campaign and so on. Um, Mrs. Thatcher was elected in um, the summer of 1979, first woman prime minister, conservative, on this sort of promise of radical medicine to cure the, the disease. And what's actually happened is that the first sort of two and a half years, everything has just appears to have got immeasurably worse. So we did a podcast. One of our early podcasts was about 1981. 1981 in Britain is a pretty awful year. Unemployment through the roof, um, uh, riots, riots yeah. inner city riots, uh, the IRA hunger strikes in Northern although, Ireland. Although the ashes. So We did beat Australia again. Yeah, it was both of them's ashes, exactly. Yeah. But by and large, it's, a, it's, a, it's been politically a, a time of enormous turbulence. Margaret Thatcher, to most people, appears an aberration, an anomaly, you know, this mad woman whose popularity has reached depths unprecedented in polling history. So she's the most unpopular prime minister since records began at the end of 1981. Um the Conservatives are in third place in the opinion polls. There's a new party called the Social Democratic Party, which is leading the opinion polls. Um, so, and I think if you're an Argentine general, you look at Britain, you say, well, Britain is, is weak. It lost its empire. It's had a shambolic last 10 years. It has this mad woman. I mean, a woman as prime minister, unthinkable. There is obviously no way that the British will do anything. And even if they try to, who cares? No one will back them. They're just a dead, you know, busted flush. Uh, one of the things that uh, obviously 
that Mrs. Thatcher and her government are trying to do is to claw back on spending. Yeah. And the Ministry of Defence, I mean, this is the Cold War, so there's quite a lot of, of spending on defence. Mrs. Thatcher has initiated a review, am I right, that yeah. particularly targets the Navy. Well, they have to cut something. So she's desperate to cut spending because of her, her sort of her political and economic agenda um, and to sort of cut Britain's deficit. And in January 1981, she has brought in this guy called John Knott, um, who uh, I know you like this line, Tom. He looks like a, a man who should have been a Bond villain's accountant. I do like that line. Yes. <laughs> but, but had been in, in Malaya, is that right? In the Gurkhas. He'd been in an the officer Gurkhas. in the Gurkhas. So he- as, I, as I learned yesterday from Twitter when I put this out, uh, Tony Hart, who was um, yeah. on Vision On. Yes, the guy. I mean, nothing to lots of listeners. But- no, but the guy who would instruct children on. I never to liked Tony Hart's to, programs because I liked paint and draw. I felt that it was uh, it was very even at the age of sort of four or five. I felt that it was too worthy, and I really wanted to be watching. Obviously, Paddington, Tom. Well, was I, I was a, I was a big fan, and he had, his best friend was a a, a plasticine man well, Morph. called Morph. Yeah, but anyway, this, we're we're, <laughs> we're we're slaloming off off piece here. Yeah. Let's, so let's so so. But one of the reasons why I mentioned John Knott, who yeah. I mean, he absolutely does look like a kind of villainous accountant. You're, you're completely <laughs> right. And a lot of the kind of Tory grandees in Mrs. Thatcher's cabinet do they? You know, thick glasses, yeah. kind of balding, spindly. Yeah. Uh, you, you feel you know they wouldn't be, be be a good hand in the fight. But almost all of them have won the military cross yeah. or something, <laughs> right? In the Second World War. I yeah. mean, they, they, uh, so so lots of the people with Mrs. Tha- in Mrs. Thatcher's government are, are, are war heroes. They are decorated um, war heroes. Willie Whitelaw, Lord Carrington, all the sort of. The so Lord Carrington is Lord Carrington is, is foreign secretary. secretary. Willie we'll Whitelaw is Home Secretary. So we'll come to Lord Carrington in a second, because he's really important. But or not. So John Knott has been told. I mean, this, would be, by the way, would be music to the to the ears of Argentina's government if they'd sort of been following, if they'd been reading all this. So not basically is told to cut defence spending. They have the choice of cutting the army in West Germany, the British Army and the Rhine, or the Navy. And their basic attitude is precisely as you say, Tom, because it's the Cold War. Well, we need the army on the Rhine, but the Navy is neither here nor there. So he says, well, let's get rid of most of the fleet. We'll shut the dockyards. We'll get rid of – we've got three aircraft carriers. We'll get rid of two of them, Hermes and Invincible. We'll close the dockyards in Gibraltar. We'll shut a lot of the stuff in Portsmouth. Get rid of it. You know, get just 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 close it all down. And one of the things that they say let's let's get rid of is this ice patrol ship, very important, called the Endurance, which mm. is basically like an antique that just sort of potters around yeah. by the Falkland Islands as this sort of it's it's barely a deterrent. It's a sort of it's a totem of deterrence rather than a deterrent in itself. But but Lord Carrington, who is the Foreign Secretary, yes. he, he does understand that this might signal um, a certain degree of weakness yeah. to to Argentina, and he he does kick up a fuss. And you you say about this that the decision to scrap endurance, which Mrs. Thatcher goes ahead with, was one of the most expensive she ever took because yeah. effectively it serves to green light the invasion. Is that is that right? Yeah, so I suppose the. Um... The analogy that I give is um, that it's like getting rid of a burglar alarm on your house. If there yeah. are burglars on the other side of the road watching, you'd be and you come out and very publicly start to dismantle your burglar alarm. <laughs> yes. um, now yeah. you could say, I mean, the burglars are still at fault, and you 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 still have the right not to be burgled. But but it is you would argue it's foolish. That's basically what Lord Carrington, the Foreign Secretary, says. We shouldn't get rid of it, even if it's a bit. Exp- you know, it's not that expensive. Mm. Um, he says it's it's you know it's cheaper than having the Argentines invade. <laughs> now the thing is, 
Lord Carrington, since he became Foreign Secretary in 1979, has been saying to the, his government colleagues, I think the Argentines, you know, they're, they're, they're rattling their sabres a little bit too loudly. And I don't think deep down he really believes the Argentines are going to invade because that would just be such a lunatic thing to do. But he sort of says, they could, you know, we should be on our guard. Now, some listeners will especially overseas listeners, and if we have Spanish-speaking listeners, we'll be saying, oh, the Brits, they just, you know, they're died-in-the-wool imperialists just clinging on to their colonies and all this. This is absolutely not the case with the Falkland Islands. Yeah, they're desperate to get rid of them. We, we, have, we were desperate to get rid of them because <laughs> they're expensive. You have to keep sending them stuff. They're miles away and they don't really, you know, we don't need and, more sheep. And we don't need wool. <laughs> Isn't there a plan to, to give all of them a million pounds? Well, that comes later them, To persuade them to <laughs> That comes to leave. later on. Yes, one of Mrs. Thatcher's key economic advisors, Alan Walters, did say later on, <laughs> it'll be much cheaper if we give them each a million pounds and get them to leave than fight to, to, to get their islands back for them. But So Britain wants to do business with Argentina. So the foreign office is, uh, when the foreign office looks at this, they say, listen, yeah, we want to trade with Argentina. They're actually a, a friendly country because, you know, they're on our side in the Cold War. The Falklands issue is getting in the way, and it's much quick better. Persuade the Falkland Islanders, who rely on Argentina anyway. You know, if they if you if you need medical treatment, you're flown to Buenos Aires. You know, the flights go through there, you know, they get stuff from Buenos Aires. Why don't we just persuade them that it's in their interests to have a relationship with Argentina? And um they basically cook up this plan in about 1980, and the, and the plan is they will they know that the islanders don't want to just be handed over. So Mrs. Thatcher sends one of her junior ministers, a guy called Nicholas Ridley, very famous for smoking and not liking the Germans. Yeah, <laughs> and the grandson of the architect, Sir Edward Lutyens. Ed Lutyens, exactly. So very aristocratic. They yeah. sent him over to the Falkland Islands, and he's got to sell the islanders this thing, which is basically – They'll do a deal with the, with the with Argentina where Argentina will get sovereignty over the Falklands, but they'll basically rent them out to Britain to administer for them so that the islanders can still feel that they're being run by the Brit British and that the Union Jack is flying and stuff. And that'll be like a 99-year lease or something. So like Argentina, Hong Kong. Yeah, like Hong Kong. But Argentina will be able to say, oh, we've got them back. They're ours. Yeah. And, and and Ridley goes over and he has this sort of public meeting and people say, no, yeah, they don't like it. Um, we don't want to be Argentines. We hate the Argentines. We hate you. Um, and he's fabulously rude. Isn't he, he is very rude. He says he's kind uh, of a posh nicotine yeah. smoker. So he basically <laughs> says, yeah, they, they, at one point they, they shout, it's an amazing exchange. So somebody shouts from the audience and he says, what are you going to do if the Argentines invade? And Ridley says, oh, I'll kick them out. And and they, they all laugh at him mockingly. And he says, well, we would kick them out if they invaded. But then he goes on to say, he says, well, that's not the issue. He says, the problem is, do you want the Argentinians invading you and us kicking them out in a state of a perpetual war? It's all very well sitting here saying someone else must come and kick the Argentinians out. Of course we would. But is that good for sheep farming, for fishing, for looking for oil, for your futures, for your children, for your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren? Is that the way you want to live? This is what you've got to think about. So he explicitly says this to the islanders. And the islanders basically say, get out. We hate you. <laughs> we mm. want to stay British. And when he leaves, do you know what they do? As his, as his plane is leaving, they, have a, they, they mount a loudspeaker. <laughs> <laughs> land of hope and glory. This land is our land and we shall not be moved. <laughs> right. So a triumphant diplomatic foray. Do, do you think it might have worked out differently if he'd been more of a diplomat? Because he's, I mean, he's f notoriously 
I mean, he gets sacked. He gets sacked later on, doesn't he, for insulting Chancellor Cole? Yeah, he, and, in and calling him a Nazi. <laughs> yeah, he does. Um, he said the the European a, Union was a German a racket to take over yeah. Europe. Um, I think no, I actually think even if they'd sent someone more emollient, okay. the Falkland Islanders would have eaten them alive. I mean, the Falkland Islanders are farmers, and they are, they are sort of plain speaking. But also, here's the thing: it's not just atavism and, and sort of you know, prejudice that the Falkland Islanders don't want to be Argentinian. The Argentines, at the moment that Ridley is speaking, are kind of electrocuting, mm. you know, folk yeah. singers and kicking people <laughs> out of helicopters into, yeah, the, no. into uh, the Atlantic Ocean. So the Falkland Islanders say, what the hell? Why would we want to be part yeah, of, by the, have yeah. that regime in charge? Okay, okay. So so um, the, 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 the aspiration of the British government to save money by getting rid of the um, the naval forces in the South Atlantic and trying to persuade the Falklanders to go over, I guess, again, must kind of add to the sense in Buenos Aires that um, the British are not going to, they don't really care. They're not yeah. going to fight over this. British and are getting so, rid of their ice ship. And so they, they, they start to prepare an invasion. But yeah. then, then, then there is, and this is kind of where the element of um, the, the, the comic and the Just farcical intrudes. Yeah. <laughs> We, we've mentioned South Georgia. What happens there? Just as just as the Argentinian Navy is is preparing its invasion. So this is so weird. This is really is so weird. So the Argentine Navy basically construct this plan in the early months of 1982. What they want to do is they want to attack in the in the latter part of the of you know of the year. So when the weather is so bad, because obviously the seasons are reversed in the mm. in the South Atlantic, they want to do it when the weather is so bad. And all, obviously, British defence cuts will start to be kicking in. So the British cannot send a task force to retake the islands. And had they done so, Tom, I would that say, would there's a, that, yeah, that probably would be it. Because what would happen is that so long, such a long time would elapse before the British could then get a task force together that there'd be some sort of diplomatic fudge. Well, but also the islands would be so strongly fortified by that. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So it's so... You know, it's a no-brainer from the Argentine point of view. But completely bizarre. And they'll do it in time for the 1983 anniversary, so they'll have crowds on the streets. It'll be great. From the completely bizarrely, a sort of separate part of the Argentine Navy decides that they'll also mount this sort of stunt on the island of South Georgia, which is, you know, as we said, hundreds of miles away and is the base of the British Antarctic Survey. And they Because they decide they'd like that as well. And what they'll do is... There's a South Georgia was always very big for whaling, and there's a sort of whaling station and oil processing stuff just lying about, loads of scrap metal. At the end of the 70s, an Argentine guy called Constantino Davidoff basically applied to the British Foreign Office and said, can I come and take away all this scrap metal and sell it in Argentina? They were like, yeah, great. So he makes one trip with all his scrap metal men, and they behave very badly on the islands. They make a mess, and they put graffiti everywhere and they just you know the, the people of the british antarctic survey and they roast about, a reindeer right well that's the second that's the second group I mean, that's, that's shocking it. behavior Stafford actually went to the british embassy and he complained and he apolo- formally apologized said we behave very badly that won't happen again can we come back and get the rest of the scrap metal yes so back they come to get the rest of the scrap metal now in the interim what seems to have happened is the argentine navy got hold that he of the fact that he was going and said we'll give you ships you can take some of our men with you, you know, in sort of paramilitary uniform, and then they can just seize the island. And that's great. It's, that'll be a great hoot. Um, and there's nothing the British Antarctic Survey can So as you say, Tom, they go along in March. 
dressed as scra- disguised as scrap metal dealers, <laughs> and they barbecue a reindeer. Well, and this draws the attention of the British Antarctic Survey, <laughs> who are sort of science, open university men with beards studying penguins or whatever they're doing, who, who come over the ridge and see these blokes in military uniforms eating reindeer. And they then send a message back initially to the Falklands and then to London saying, absolutely disgraceful behaviour, even well, by Dominic, the standards of... <laughs> Dominic, I was reading, reading your book yesterday and um, I, you know, I, I've done a lot of podcasts with you, so I'm very well attuned to your verbal rhythms and idiosyncrasies. And when I read this sentence about the, uh, the roasting of the, the barbecuing of local reindeer, which was a protected species, even by the standards of South American scrap metal dealers this seemed pretty poor form and i thought only that is such a sandbrook sentence (laughs) well it is poor form it is indisputable yeah you can't go around roasted barbecuing reindeer okay so so that's bad and and that snap that snarls up the article time plan completely yeah so they have to go early so basically what happens is news of this south georgia fiasco gets back to london and a lot of tory mps but also the labor party Go absolutely berserk, absolutely disgraced by national uh, honour. Yeah. yeah. So there's an awful lot of shouting in the House of Commons. Get rid of these scrap metal dealers. They're stealing our rock. Um, all that. Stealing our reindeer. Right. Exactly. And they have, and, and the, the, the Foreign Office put up some feeble minister who gives a speech and, and everybody shouts at him. And in the gallery is a man from the Argentine embassy. And he sends a report back to Buenos Aires saying, Oh my God. The British have found out what's going on in South Georgia. This is going to absolutely mess with our plan to invade the Falkland Islands. And so the the Argentine military have a big meeting in on the 26th, I think it is, uh, or 25th, 26th of March. They have a series of meetings. They basically say to the people planning the operation, you know that operation you're going to do in the autumn? Can you do it in basically three days? <laughs> and they say, sure. So on the 26th of March, the hunter make the decision fine, we'll invade that now. Because if we leave it any longer, the British will send, you know, they'll be, in, they'll be dealing with South Georgia. There'll be lots of ships. It'll be, a, it'll be a mess. We've got to do it right away. And so it's very Russia and Ukraine. They, on the 28th of March, they tell all their, their troops who are conscripts, you're going on a very big exercise. They load them all onto these troop ships for, and they've crates of Argentine flags for them to hand out to the islanders who they, who some of the conscripts believe will be delighted to be liberated from the British because that's what they've the been British told. Yoke. Yep. The British yoke. And, um, and off they go sailing. And the British have no idea that this is coming. The, the, the representative of the British government on the Falklands is a man called Sir Rex Hunt. He's a splendid fellow. I love Rex Hunt. Who you describe in your book. Again, quotations are so good, I can't help but cite them. A bluff, jolly, stocky fellow, as if playing a British colonial governor in a Peter Sellers comedy. Yeah. So Rex Hunt is this, right, so Rex Hunt is in his mid-50s. He's a sort of short fellow. Um, he Exactly that, Tom. He looks like a man who plays the governor of some ter- some you know, godforsaken island that no one's really that bothered about. Carry on the Falkland Islands. Yeah, because yeah. he's... Played he's by a, Sid James. Played by Sid, he would be played by Sid James. So... Rex Hunt is not a star of the Foreign Office by any means. And somebody has some, said at some point, well, what will we do with old Rex? No, send him to, <laughs> we'll send him to Stanley. Send him to the Falklands. He'd love it out there. And Rex Hunt likes flying. And he thinks, well, I can do a lot of flying, amateur flying. And he goes to the Falkland Islands to be the governor with his wife, Mavis. And, um, and they live in this sort of Victorian, it looks like a kind of Victorian farmhouse, which is the kind of governor's house. 
And he but dri- he's very he, good at it, isn't he? He's brilliant. He drives a red taxi, a London taxi, which is his official vehicle. It's just basically all he has to do is judge sheepdog trials and kind of have groups of the islanders over for, for dinner and just sort of shake people's hands and be a sort of friendly guy, drink cups of tea. And- so it's like being kind of local laird in a exactly borders, yeah. the borders yeah. or something. It's exactly what it is. And he's very good at it. The foreign officer said to him, yeah, it'd be very good if you could tell these chaps their future lies with Argentina. And actually, when he gets there, he is completely converted to the Falklands. So he goes native. So he goes native. And the, Falk- and the foreign officer are very displeased with him. Um, so, I mean, the story is incredible. So on the, the, <laughs> on the Wednesday night, so I think that's the, the last night in March, the local magistrate had retired and, and Rex Hunt had had the bigwigs, such as they are, of the Falklands over for dinner. And they'd watched a film about the Falklands, <laughs> an ITV documentary about their own islands called More British Than the British. <laughs> And they loved it. They thought it was absolutely brilliant. It was all about how they had tins of spam flown in and yeah. they ate Mars bars and all this sort of stuff. So he's had a, he's had a big night. Um, he gets up. His son Tony is home from boarding school and they finally got Tony to do his project or his work. So that's good news. And he does a bit of paperwork. This is Thursday. He has lunch, you know, Mavis, Tony, <laughs> Rex. Coronation chicken. Um, <laughs> and then at 3.30... Um, the radio operator whose office is in government house comes and knocks on the door and he says, um, we've just had this telegram. And the telegram says, we have apparently reliable evidence that an Argentine task force will gather off Cape Pembroke early tomorrow morning, 2nd April. You will wish to make your dispositions accordingly. And is that coming from, that's coming from British? That's coming from London. Yeah. So that's basically like, oh, by the way, you're about to be invaded tomorrow morning. You know, do what you have to do. And Rex Hunt, who... Up till this point, has never had. He has his sort of um, Zelensky moment. <laughs> this is what this. <laughs> so he basically says, "Right, burn all the classified papers." He he rings around. He says, um, "Cancel the schools for tomorrow." There's a there's a Royal Marine garrison with sixty nine people, and he tells them. They say, "Well, we'll we'll mount our defence here in Government House in this sort of big Victorian house." So he sends Mavis and Tony off to stay with some friends, um, although. Not until they've had their dinner. So they still good. stay for yeah, dinner. Good. They have dinner. So that's, yeah, so that's very carry on. They have a family dinner. Then um, they go off to stay with friends. The Marines are now moving in, moving in all their kit. And Rex uh, goes off to get his shotgun. And when he goes to get it, he finds that his chauffeur, the man who drives the taxi, is there, got there before him and is just loading it. And the driver, this driver says to him, I've left the flag up tonight, sir, and I'll shoot any argy bastard who tries to take it down. And Rex Hunt is so moved by this that he has to turn away to hide his tears. <laughs> he thinks this is such a splendid moment. So but then this is the, the single detail, the entire Fallen's epic that I find most extraordinary. He then goes to bed and has like a sleep. Well, and you would yeah. think that most people would be shaking with nerves. But Rex Hunt, no, he has a sleep. He wakes up again at sort of two o'clock in the morning or three in the morning. The place is now full of Royal Marines. and He's got his gun. Um, he has another message from the Foreign Office. The Foreign Office say, we've tried to ask Ronald Reagan to intercede with the Argentines, but no joy. The Argentines are on their way. And then at about 5 a.m., Rex hears these colossal bangs and explosions. The Argentines have clearly landed, and they've opened fire um, on the Marines. And suddenly, there he is in the middle of the, you know, there's all this shooting going on, and they're basically, they're, they're, they're under siege. And on that 
literal bombshell. Oh, very good. Time. I think I think that we should we should um, we should take a halt. Okay. And continue this gripping, epic, heroic comic narrative tomorrow. So we will see you tomorrow when we will talk about how the Falklands fell and what the reaction was in London. Brilliant. See you tomorrow, everybody. Bye bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Listener.